0: St. Augustine famously said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. If you're anything like me, you've experienced seasons of life where you didn't feel particularly close to God. Maybe what it feels more like is that God isn't very close to you. And in such seasons, I'm willing to guess that there's a certain restlessness in your heart. Like all is not well, something is not right. There's there's a sense of of unsettledness, restlessness, to use Augustine's word. And it's only when that dry season ends, when, when the sunshine of God's love and the rain of God's word cause new life to begin to sprout again in your spirit, that your heart can begin to find that rest. If you've experienced such a spiritual drought, if you're in one of those right now, I believe the message of the Old Testament book of Zechariah may prove good medicine for your heart. Zechariah is one of the, uh, the, the oft-forgotten minor prophets These are the the Old Testament books at the back, you know, where where you flip through really fast when you're trying to find the Gospels. You know, when someone says, turn to John, you're like, oh, who are all these random names? You know, Uh, they all have, most of them have uh, these great names that probably none of us are pronouncing properly. They're called minor prophets, not because they're insignificant, uh, but simply because their books are generally shorter. That's really all it means. So when we talk about the major prophets, and you can name some of those guys, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. When we talk about the major prophets, we're talking about the prophets of Israel that wrote long books. And when we talk about minor prophets, we're talking about prophets of Israel who wrote short books, comparatively uh, short books. And uh, so we, we often skip over these minor prophets. If you're looking for uh, the book of Zechariah, uh, if you have one of those black uh, ESV Bibles that are on the chairs beside you, it's on page 745, so I can help you with that. It's on page 34 in the scripture journal you have, because you might notice that the scripture journal actually contains four books. Zephaniah Haggai, Zechariah Malachi, which is a fun little rhyme. That's how I memorized, I mean, it's, it's natural, a mnemonic device there, to memorize the last four books of the Old Testament. Zephaniah Haggai, Zechariah Malachi, right? Uh, There's a little song that I learned. Uh, at any rate, so it's page 34 in the Scripture Journal. That's the book we look. Don't, don't get confused or take notes on Zephaniah. You'd be like, what are we doing? It looks similar, but it's not the same. All right. um, so we will look, if you don't have one of those black Bibles, you may just have to look at the table of contents in your copy of the Scriptures and, and find where it is in, in that way. Toward the back of the Old Testament. We're going to look today at the first six verses of uh, chapter one of Zechariah. And then we're going to speed up considerably and start taking larger chunks of text at a time uh, each week. I'm aiming for 10 to 12 weeks in, uh, in this book. Uh, so it won't always be six verses at a time. Among the minor prophets, by the way, Zechariah is the longest. It's the, the lengthiest of the, of the minor prophets. And it is the minor prophet, in fact, it is the prophet outside of Isaiah who is quoted or alluded to most frequently in the New Testament. So there's a lot of Zechariah images and language that that come up over and over again in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Revelation, which we just spent most of a year in. So you'll probably find some similarities between this book and that one. But before we get to the text, we've got to get a little bit of context, kind of a lay of the land, set the scene so we understand what's going on in the book of Zechariah, because the book is largely prophecies that God gave to Zechariah that then he spoke to the people. And so without an understanding of what's happening in the life of God's people at this time, these words don't make a lot of sense. So we have to understand what's going on. So one question we got to ask is, what is happening in Israel during this period of time? Well, we spent a lot of last year... Uh, in the days of conquest under Joshua. That's what our men's study was on. Our women were studying the book of Judges. Then we did a sermon series late last year in the book of Ruth. All of that was in the same short period of time. So here we're fast-forwarding past the days of conquest, past the days of Judges when Naomi returned to Bethlehem with Ruth the Moabite, through a period of Israel's united kingdom under the king Saul, David, and Solomon – And through a period of the divided kingdom where the people of Israel were split into two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and there were a lot of kings in both of those places, and most of them were not very godly men. And as a result of the lack of godliness, uh, the children of Israel wandered from God in idolatry and immorality and rebellion, and eventually they earned God's judgment. So in the year 586 B.C., the Persian king Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem, burned the temple to the ground, and dragged the people of Judah as captives to Babylon in the east, where they spent 70 years living in exile. And uh, so away from the promised land, away from God's blessing and favor, this has been the the lot of of the people of Israel for these 70 years because of their own wandering and rebellion. And now the 70 years have ended and the Jews have been returning in waves to the land of of Judah. And the the story of these post-exilic returns to Judah are told in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in fact, you'll find mentions of Zechariah and his contemporary Haggai in those books. So the ministry of Zechariah occurs during this post exilic period where the people of Judah have returned to Jerusalem and are beginning to sort of rebuild their lives as the covenant people of God. Uh, and so Zechariah and Haggai uh, are ministering to the people uh, during this period. Now, the particular, to get even more detailed, the particular historical context of Zechariah's book, at least the first half of it, and you'll see as we go along, there's, there's a clear distinction in style and probably even in time between the first half or so of the book, the first six chapters of the book, or eight chapters, really, of the book of Zechariah, and then the last chapters. Um, so the historical context of this book is that after an enthusiastic start Through the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, the people met strong opposition from neighboring peoples who weren't happy that they were back. And they stopped. Ezra 4.24 says, The work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, which, by the way, is about 16 years. So God sent them back into their land, told them to begin rebuilding their temple. They got started on it. They spent about two years on it, and then they stopped because of opposition of various kinds. And for 16 years, the work has been ceased, and the temple foundation lies incomplete. Well, note the first words of Zechariah, right? So Ezra told us that the work stopped until the second year of King Darius. Look at verse 1 of Zechariah. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. So this is the context into which Zechariah speaks. God is at work again among his people, stirring their hearts to resume the building of the temple and urging them to renew their covenant loyalty to him. And he works among them in these ways, largely through the prophetic ministries of Haggai and Zechariah. Well, who is Zechariah? We don't know just a whole lot about him. We know that he is a prophet, and he's introduced that way uh, in verse one. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. He's also spoken of in the book of Ezra. Uh, Summarize really. Uh, Ezra chapter five, verses one and two provides a little a short summary of kind of the entirety of Zechariah's ministry during this period of time. It says that the, you know that uh, the Lord stirred the heart of Zerubbabel. And Joshua the high priest to rebuild the temple, and the, minis- the the work was supported by Zechariah and Haggai. So you have this sort of like summary of what is going on in their ministries and what the people are doing. So we know that he's a prophet. We also know that he's a priest. We're told here that he's the son of Ido, or excuse me, the son of Berechiah, son of. Iddo. And those men are listed, Iddo specifically, in a list of priestly families in Nehemiah chapter 12. And further on in Nehemiah chapter 12, Zechariah is named explicitly as the one who served on behalf of the priestly family of uh, Iddo as a priest. So we know that he's been appointed by God as both a priest and a prophet, which points us forward to a future fulfillment, a fuller fulfillment in Jesus, who would be prophet of God and the priest, the high priest for his people, and indeed the king. And so he's a priest and a king. And his name remember uh, means Yahweh remembers. If you think about the setting of this and the time in which Zechariah serves, that is a very fitting name. The people have been in exile, for seemingly forsaken for these seventy years, and God has Remembered his people and his covenant with them. And he's returning to them and he's calling to them through the ministry of Zechariah. Yahweh remembers. Well, let's read the first six verses of chapter one. That's probably enough background to get us started. And we'll see what the Lord has for us in these verses. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, Son of Ido, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. May God bless his word to us and give us eyes to see and ears to hear his message to us this morning. The first thing that's clear to us in these opening verses of the book of Zechariah is the hard mercy of a warning. The hard mercy of a warning. You can see that God begins by looking back to a time in Israel's life where there had been substantial wickedness and rebellion. He says in verse 2, The Lord was very angry with your fathers, that is, your ancestors. So remember, we're dealing now with a new generation of Israelites. After the 70 years in exile in Babylon, many of that generation had died. And so now it's sort of a new generation returning to the land of Judah. And so he has Zechariah say to the people, so to his contemporaries, right? The Lord was very angry with your fathers. There, that, the, the wickedness of that generation led to the exile in Babylon. And when it says that the Lord was very angry, in, in Hebrew, the way that it expresses this is he was angry with anger. Because Hebrew doesn't have a way to sort of emphasize a word by adding an adjective like we do in English. We say, I was angry. I wasn't just angry. I was really angry. I was very angry. Hebrew says, I was angry. I was angry with anger. Like it's an intense anger. It's an intense, strong wrath that Yahweh feels, felt toward the sin and rebellion of this generation's ancestors. And so he reminds them, Yahweh was very angry with your fathers because of their sin, because of their disobedience, because they had dishonored him and abandoned the covenant. And if he was angry then, he could be provoked to anger again. It's good for the people of God in the current generation to remember God has judged the sin of his people in the past. God has disciplined his people in the past. We've seen it. We grew up in Babylon because of God's judgment, of God's anger against the sins of my parents. It's good for us to remember that God may be provoked to anger again. And so he warns them, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. And he called to them that previous generation. He, he, he summarizes the ministry of the former generation of prophets. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, those guys. He summarizes the message of, uh, of those prophets by saying, they said to your ancestors over and over, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. That was their message over and over. Obviously, in more words than that, in more vivid ways than that, and images and commands and warnings. But over and over, the prophets had warned the people, return. From your evil ways, repent of your wickedness, your evil deeds. It's interesting here that it says, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. Those seem to mean different things. Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser explains that the distinction between these things is that evil ways would be something like a mindset, an, an inward inclination towards sin and wickedness. And evil deeds then would be That mindset activated, right, by actual choices and actions carrying out evil. And so he calls the people not just to stop doing evil things, but even to turn away from their evil inclinations. Turn your hearts away from sin and wickedness and back toward the Lord. And so the call here is this this turning around, both from the inclination toward evil and from evil actions. Now, Unfortunately, as Zechariah's audience knew all too well, that generation of Israelites had not heeded these warnings. He always says that to Zechariah. He says, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. That doesn't mean they literally didn't hear, like, oh, I didn't know anyone was talking to me. They chose not to listen. They did not pay attention to me, declares the Lord. And so, the very next thing he says in verse six is, my words and my statutes, which I commanded my service of prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? That's an interesting way to say this. The phrase overtake there means something like catch up. So if you're running away from God in disobedience, His warnings will eventually catch up to you. What he says, he will do. Even concerning discipline and judgment upon our foolish rebellion. And we see that time and time again in the scriptures. And I would guess that most of you, like me, have seen it in your own lives. When we are inclined to turn away from God and to run from him, and we're making choices that we know are wrong, it catches up. His judgment finds us. Discipline finds a way. And it seems that the people finally recognize this. And there there is some ambiguity and disagreement as to whether the people repenting in verse 6 were the previous generation. Grammatically, in the ESV, that's what it looks like. And in fact, in the, in the Hebrew, it seems most naturally as well because it says they repented and there's not a new subject for that they to refer to. So grammatically, it seems that he's saying they, that is your fathers, finally repented and said, the Lord of hosts, has, as the Lord has purposed to deal with us, so has he dealt with us. But it makes a bit more sense to think that this is the current generation, the the, the audience to whom Zechariah is preaching, who hear this reminder of God's judgment on their their father's generation, and who then recognize all that God has done in that exile was right. He was just carrying out what he told us that he would do. One way or the other, there there is a recognition here, a hopeful turning of heart. That the people of Israel begin to recognize God has only done what he told us he would do. He was true to his word, even his word of warning and of coming judgment. Listen, a warning from God is an act of divine mercy. He does not owe us a warning. He does not owe us time to repent. He does not owe us our next breath. But he warns sinners and he warns his own wandering people because of his mercy. So, words, messages like this that warn of judgment to come, we should not see these as harsh, as unloving, as uncaring. How could God be so hardened toward his people that he would warn them in these stern ways? This is kindness. Of God to warn his people. When we lived in Houston, uh, there was a man who was a friend of mine, uh, a professing Christian and actually a member of the church where I was on staff and our family attended. uh, A a friend of mine who made a heart-wrenching string of destructive decisions, uh, committing adultery, abandoning his wife and young children, Moving in with another woman and her children, severing all ties to uh, former friends and pastors and church acquaintances. It was devastating to watch. Uh, and he was no longer physically around. Obviously, he had made himself scarce, and I couldn't get him on the phone. So one day I wrote him an email urging him to come to his senses. To repent of his sins, to turn back toward his wife and children, and more importantly, to turn back toward God, whom he had abandoned in this string of selfish and destructive decisions. And I conveyed to him some of the strong warnings in the scriptures concerning the eternal destiny of those who continue in blatant rebellion and disregard warnings and pleas from fellow Christians. Jesus says if people if, if a sinning uh, brother will not listen to the warnings of the church, regard him as, a, as an unbeliever, a tax collector and a Gentile. These are strong warnings. And so I conveyed some of these things to him in this email and I, and I just urged him, repent, turn, return to God. The gospel is so good and ridiculously glorious that even after this string of destructive decisions, if you will turn your heart back to him in humble repentance, he will welcome you. Because repentance is always met with mercy. That's the gospel. And so as best I could in this email, I I laid all this out to him and, and urged him to repent and return. Probably not surprised to find he never replied to that email. But I did hear later from a mutual friend who had talked with him that he thought I was being mean to him. His reflection on that email was, why is Kyle being so mean? Well, that story unfolded tragically. Uh, My friend never returned to his family, never took responsibility for his actions, never, at least as far as I know or saw, never repented to the Lord for his blatant disobedience. And I trembled to consider the wrath that he's storing up for himself on the day of judgment. But a word of warning from the scriptures was regarded as meanness. You're just being mean. It need not be this way. Brothers and sisters, let us heed the warnings that God gives us. Let us believe God when he tells us that he will judge sin, that he will discipline his people. His correction will come into our lives when we neglect his word and live out of step with his ways. And so we praise God for the hard mercy of a warning. But at the same time, these verses lead us to rejoice in the gentle grace of a welcome. The gentle grace of a welcome. And we see this right in the middle of this passage in verse 3. Let's look at that verse together. I'll read it aloud. It says, Therefore say to them, thus declares Yahweh of hosts, return to me, says Yahweh of hosts, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. Now I want you to notice that phrase, that title, Yahweh of hosts. Remember, when you're looking at an English Bible and you see all caps, L-O-R-D, that is, back behind that is the the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And so he's called Yahweh of hosts. And it's repeated 53 times in this book. He is called Yahweh of hosts 53 times in the 14 chapters of Zechariah. And three times in verse 3. It seems almost ridiculously repetitive when you read it. Thus declares Yahweh of hosts, return to me, says Yahweh of hosts. And I'll return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. Like, we know who's saying this. Why do you keep saying this? Why does he repeat it? Well, I think we've got to understand what that means. Hosts refers to armies of angels at his bidding. To call him Yahweh of hosts is to highlight his sovereign might and his authority as king over all. It is the title alerting us to his power and rule. You know, sometimes in America, we call the president commander in chief. That's one of the titles of that office. And that particular title is a reminder that the armies of the nation, all the branches of the U.S. military are at the president's disposal and they will follow his command. When war is declared and the president says, go, they go. Right? He is the commander in chief. He owns, he commands, he controls all of the armies of the nation. And so Yahweh of hosts calls to our minds that the God who is speaking here is the one who has divine authority over the armies of heaven and indeed over all the universe. The Lord wants his people to see that plainly. Zechariah wants his people to receive that message clearly. What does this almighty, sovereign ruler declare? Return to me. Return to me. It's an exhortation to the nation to repent of their waywardness, to forsake their idolatry to renew their obedience to their covenant with him. Love me, honor me, follow me, order your lives once again around your relationship to me. This is the command of Yahweh of hosts, return, come back. Staggering grace that he invites the erring, wandering, rebellious people who have spurned him over and over, who have insulted him and offended his majesty. He says, come back, come back to me. This is God. This is his heart for his people. If you do, return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. If the Israelites' judgment and exile was an, was an indication of God having forsaken his people, having removed his divine blessing and favor for a season, then the promise of his return would be that he would once again draw near to them in covenant love and blessing. Commentator Anthony Peterson says that this is a promise of full restoration of the blessings of the covenant. I'm not holding things over your head. If you will return and repent and honor me, I am all the way yours. I will give you all the blessings of my presence my faithfulness and my covenant with you. God's patience with his people is astounding. Considering Israel's unfaithfulness to the covenant and their frequent disregard for God and his honor, it isn't surprising that he would punish them by sending them into exile for 70 years. That makes sense. Man, I probably would have sent them into exile a lot sooner and probably for a little bit longer than 70 years. What is surprising is that when that period of time ends, he would return to them yet again in kindness and love and restore them to their place of prosperity and blessing. Andy Gullihorn has a song called Desperate Man where he says to the Lord, You've been more than patient all this time. If it were me, I would have given up long ago. The first time that you pulled me from the mire and I brushed you off to dig another hole. Isn't that so often the way that we live? From one hole to the next. From one pigsty to another. From one feast in the mud to another. And God patiently restores. God waits for us to repent and to return And his arms are open. He's waiting to welcome us. After the hard mercy of a warning, it is sweet beyond description to land in the gentle grace of a welcome. All right, let me me get practical for a couple of minutes. What does this mean for us? What will it look like to heed God's word of warning and his word of Welcome. What does it look like? Let me give you three things. Number one, taking his word seriously. Heeding his words of warning and welcome will mean taking his word seriously. Did you notice the emphasis on God's words in these six verses? In verse one, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet Zechariah. There's one. In verse three, Therefore say to them, thus declares Yahweh. That's something coming from his mouth, right? Return to me, says Yahweh of hosts. That's three. And I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. These are words coming from the mouth of God. We're up to four. Verse five. All right. Verse four. Thank you. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Yes, I wrote down the wrong verse. It is verse 4. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares Yahweh. So there's two more mentions of him speaking there. And then in verse 6, he speaks of his words and his statutes. My words and my statutes eventually overtook your fathers, right? They died, the prophets died, judgment came. All of these mentions, seven references to the word of God or to God speaking in just these six verses. The word of God is obviously of central importance in the life of his people. So when he's drawing near to them and he's calling to them, return to me, repent and return to me. A key part of what that means is listen to my words. Not like your fathers who didn't pay attention. They didn't hear or pay attention to my messages to them. So it will mean taking his word seriously. The best way to do that is to spend substantial, meaningful, prayerful time in the Bible. This is where God speaks to us and reveals himself to us. To quote Anthony Peterson again. He says, the heart of sin is a heart that rejects the word of God. Indeed, to reject God's word is to reject God himself. So we want to have the opposite heart. If you want to have a heart that welcomes God, that honors God, then you will have a heart that listens to his voice, that invites his word into your life. Take God's word seriously. The second thing that it will mean to heed his words of warning and welcome will be turning away from sin. Turning away from sin. We saw that very clearly In his exhortation to the the previous generation, return from your evil inclinations, your evil ways, and from your evil deeds. It will require turning away from sin. Get real with God about the sin in your life. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there would be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a posture of a heart that wants to honor God, but knows that we're going to mess it up. So this is a prayer that's like, <clears throat> there might be stuff wrong in my heart that I don't even know about. Lord, show me. Lord, help me to see what in my heart is dishonoring to you. What in my thoughts is displeasing to you. Get real with God about your sin. Name it, confess it, bring it to him, invite his grace and his help. Also, get real with other Christians about the sin in your life. We can't do this on our own. The Christian life is not a solo endeavor. It is a community project. Sanctification is a community project. So if we're going to get serious about our sin, we're going to have to talk to one another about it. We're going to have to be willing to have awkward, uncomfortable conversations and ask each other uncomfortable questions. Like, how are you doing with that sin struggle? And we're going to have to be willing to answer awkwardly. Well, actually not as great as I want to be, right? We need to talk to each other about our sin. James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We need the ministry of one another to get serious about our sin, to turn away from our sin. Returning to the Lord will mean fighting against your sinful inclinations and patterns of action. The Puritan John Owen famously said, be killing sin it will be killing you. And third and finally, heeding the word of warning and welcome in this passage will mean trusting in the God who draws near in Christ. Trusting in the God who draws near in Christ. The book of Zechariah begins with God making this promise. Return to me and I will return to you. And it seems depending on how you read the last part of verse six, it seems that the the people respond to that and they recognize the justice of God and the judgment that he's given and their their heart seems to be turned back toward him. And then the rest of the book, um, through a series of vivid visions and images that God gives to Zechariah, fleshes out the Lord's intention to draw near to his people and to do good to them. In fact, I'd say that's the overarching message of the book of Zechariah that God wants his people to hear, is God's heart is inclined to be near his people and to do them good. That is what we ought to gain as we read and consider this book together. God wants to draw near to us and to bless us with his presence and his favor and goodness. In the days of Zechariah, God would fulfill that promise by blessing the people once again in the land of Judah, by filling their temple with his presence yet again. But it would be fulfilled in an even fuller way some 500 years later, when in a stable in the Judean town of Bethlehem, God drew near to his people in the birth of Jesus Christ. The son of God became incarnate and tabernacled among us, John 1.14 says. The very presence of God among his people. And in Christ, God still draws near today to anyone who turns to him in faith. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If you don't think you're a Christian, if you've never admitted to God that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness and called in faith upon Jesus Christ as Lord, this is God's promise today. If you draw near to him, if you trust him, if you confess him as Lord, if you welcome him into your life, he'll draw near to you. He'll give you a new heart, a new life, a new future. Trust in Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, whether just for a short time or for many years, God's promise to you is the same. If you've wandered from him, if you're distant from him, hear his word to you this morning, return to me and I will return to you. He's not hiding. He's not playing games. He is ready to return. Heed his warnings. Turn from your sin. Trust again in God's saving work on your behalf in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And your heart will once again find the rest that's looking for. As the old hymn urges, come home. Come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner, come home. Let's pray.